Welcome to the Perfectly Preserved Podcast. I'm your host, Jenny Gomes. And I'm Anna Cash. Here, we come together to bring you a podcast all about preserving food safely, easily, and dare I say perfectly at home. We are master food preservers, moms, wives, and we love talking about canning. We've decided the world needs a podcast that shares up-to-date, modern, safe information about canning, dehydrating, freezing, freeze-drying, and more. We answer listener questions, teach beginner and intermediate techniques, and share our very best tips for preserving successfully. We'll show you how to find trusted recipes, sources, and more so you never have to second-guess your preserving practices again. Ready to can like a master preserver? Let's get into today's episode. Thanks for joining us for a new episode of the Perfectly Preserved Podcast. I'm your host, Jenny, and I'm here with my co-host, Anna, and we have an amazing guest to interview for you all today. We have with us Melanie Jukes, who is an extension professor with Utah State University, and she's going to answer all of our questions about cooperative extension offices, both in Utah and across the nation, what extension offices do, how they can help you as a new or experienced preserver, what kind of tests do they do, and we have tons more questions for Melanie. So welcome to the show, Melanie. Thank you. It's good to be here. Okay, Melanie, tell us a little bit about your role at the extension office. So I am based in the Salt Lake County Extension Office, and part of my role is to teach food preservation, and the main purpose of that is to teach food safety in food preservation so that what we're preserving stays safe for us to use and, of course, delicious and nutritious as well. So in my role and many other people's roles who work in cooperative extension across the nation, they are to teach the updated safe science through USDA. And how long have you been at that position, Melanie? Yeah, I've been in Salt Lake in the Salt Lake County Extension Office for um, a little more than 13 years um, and have worked with USU Extension for almost 15 and interned with them for about two years before that. So Extension's been part of my life for probably about the last 16 years. And the great part of Extension is really just taking that information and distributing it, teaching it through the communities in other ways. So I I do other things other than food preservation as well. And most people in Extension Nationwide also wear more than one hat, but that's what we'll be talking about today, of course. Perfect. So what does your, I guess, your position, your Extension office offer to the public as far as food preservation goes? Yeah. So I help organize some webinars every year, and we've been doing those more in the spring and early summer, hoping that people will learn before they do it. So that's been happening the last three years. I Before COVID, I was also doing hands-on Master Food Preserver workshops. We just haven't quite picked that back up yet post-COVID, or I guess we're still in COVID, but hopefully maybe in 2023, that will be coming back. And then I also teach classes throughout the community on request. So I'll have organizations reach out to me and they're like, come teach my group about safe canning and how to do it. And so that's part of what I do. Our office also answers via email and phone calls, um, hundreds of canning calls a year, particularly from about August to October, the kind of peak canning months, at least in Utah. So sometimes there are calls that's like, something went wrong, my lids didn't seal, I don't know why. And sometimes it's, hey, I'm new to this, I don't know where to start. 
we also get calls. It's like, Hey, I did this last night and then I learned that's wrong. What should I do? And those ones I hate the most because they always put the work into canning and maybe, and sometimes, you know, they've done it improperly in a way that's going to put them at risk for foodborne illness. So, you know, we're kind of doing risk management assessments with them, trying to help them to make the best decision based on the risks that they have, they took or, or maybe didn't know they took. And we also test pressure canner gauges, dial gauges in our office as well. What do you think is a big problem facing new preservers based on all those questions you answer over the year? I think one of the largest challenges is that people don't realize how they're putting themselves at risk for foodborne illness. And they're just learning from friends and grandparents or, or parents. And sometimes they learn correctly. And sometimes it's a tradition being passed down that has been updated. The testing has been proven to show a, a better way or, you know, there's methods that have gone away that are no longer considered safe. So I think that's the biggest challenge we see is that people just don't realize that there are safe, scientifically tested recipes available and that you don't have to guess and the instructions are given to you and you don't have to guess on processing times or whether or not it should be pressure canned. So I think that's the biggest challenge is people are learning from others who may not know the safest way to do it. Yeah, I think we run into that, Jenny and I both on our social media accounts, there's a lot of misinformation. And I think people just, like you said, don't realize that these things are updated regularly for safe practices. And they just are kind of like, well, we've been doing it like this forever, you know. Yep, exactly. And it's easy to feel that way. Um, you know, if you've been canning the fruit off your fruit trees for years and years, why would you think that there was an update? It's not a perfect system of getting the correct information out. While there are a lot of, well, not really extensions, really the only one doing it, <laughs> you know, that's like armed with getting that information out there. But it's not like there's billboards everywhere, or it's on the news all the time, or, you know, however it is that people are getting their regular information that this isn't just a hot topic generally that people are discussing the new methods. Right. So you touched on this just a little bit, but besides the pressure canner tests, do extension offices do other testing like recipe testing or can people send in recipes that maybe are a family recipe and you can give them help with that? Not necessarily, but let me walk you through what we can do. So I have been called multiple times by families or individuals who say, hey, I've got grandma's pickled recipe or salsas. It's usually those. And I am not sure if it's safe. Can you help me? And what I can do is compare to the multiple safe resources I have. And there have actually been multiple times when grandma's secret recipe was actually from the Balkan company. <laughs> so maybe not so secretive. It, I mean, it's word for word, exactly the same. But there's been other times when they have been significantly a lacking in acid, for example, for both a salsa and a pickled recipe. And there's not, unfortunately, like a perfect ratio. It's not like I know from my training that it has to be a ratio of one-to-one, -one, you know, vinegar to vegetables or whatever. Like it's, it's not quite that way. So I can't really test a recipe or tell people, yeah, it's great. Just increase the vinegar by X amount. But I can look at those, those recipes that are out. So that's what I can do. I do, and some 
people do, but it does present some risk. So, so many, many of my colleagues choose not to, but I do have a pH meter and can test batches. However, so I'll give an example of one of the last times I did it. I had a gentleman who attended a class and said, I had no idea I was supposed to add acid to tomatoes. And I just canned 96 quart jars of different tomato products that I do not want to throw away. And so I said, okay, bring in a couple things. I think he had a spaghetti, like a meatless spaghetti sauce and some salsas. And I think just regular tomatoes. The challenge is, especially when you're not adding acid, every single jar can have a different pH. And so we tested one of each of the different products he had. And what, but what I had to do was open the jar, puree it, and then calibrate this pH meter. It took us, you know, a good amount of time. It wasn't just an instant thing. Fortunately, his were within the pH range that's safe. So as we talked together about the risk, there's always that chance. There was one that was really close to the, the safety mark on pH. And so he decided he was going to buy himself a pH meter and he would just test each jar as he consumed them. Because as I mentioned, like each jar has a different pH unless you're adding, you know, the given lemon juice per, per jar. So that's something some of us throughout Utah can do. I can't speak necessarily nationally. They'd have to chat with their local extension office to find out about having that resource. But again, it, it lacks in reliability because I, I can't test your whole batch. I'm only going to do one jar at a time. And obviously you wouldn't want me to open up all of your batch. And it could potentially pose a risk to me if you significantly underprocess something, then us opening that jar could expose us to a foodborne illness like botulism if it happened to be in there. So anyway, that's, that's one thing we can do. And then I don't, but there are resources available. It's just not super common, but there are resources available with Utah State University Extension. Well, actually it's on campus with Utah State University. There is a food safety specialist who tests recipes for people to get them ready to sell commercially. And so they have to meet very specific commercial standards. And so she's regularly working with business owners who are wanting to sell jam and salsa and even like garlic sauce or whatever. And it costs quite a bit of money to get these recipes tested, to have that nutrition fact label made. But I have talked to this person and she has said, sure, I'll do home canned recipes, but they have to pay. And, you know, it's not necessarily a cheap thing to do. Another option, of course, when people come to me and they're like, but I love this recipe. I don't want to add the vinegar necessary or the lemon juice to make it safe then I'd suggest freezing it and not canning it or making it fresh instead. Yeah. You know, it's funny that you said that about sending in recipes. So just last week, I got my cottage food license for jams and jellies. I used really only ball recipes and National Center for Home Food Preservation recipes. But there was one jelly recipe, which was a rhubarb vanilla bean. And she was like, Rhubarb is a vegetable and you have to have it tested in a food science lab. It's, I think it was like a maybe $45, $50 to get it tested for pH. And I just scrapped it. I was like, I don't want to pay that for that recipe. So yeah, that's great. I, I didn't realize it was only 49, but maybe for different types of foods, there's a different processing fee or 
maybe even just testing for pH is one fee and testing for other things is another. But yeah, I mean, so, so you saw too, that's an option for people to do if they're really looking for, to get something certified as safe. Yeah. But you make a good point in that if you do a batch and you're uncertain, like I have a personal pH reader from Thermoworks that I like, but you do have to puree it and you have to look in every single jar because it, it's different, right? Like one jar may have more green peppers or more onion. You just don't know. Right. And pH of tomatoes can change too based on their ripeness. That that's one of the major factors is how ripe the tomato is or how overripe and also the variety. So if you're canning tomatoes with a different type of variety and they all have different ripeness, which who isn't? <laughs> because mm-hmm. if you're home growing tomatoes, that's just the reality of tomatoes coming on is they're all different ripeness. You've probably got different varieties. So the pH can vary quite a bit. So that's super interesting because I live in a place where our cooperative extension office offers none of these services that yours does. And that's how I came to meet you as I made friends with Anna and then came to your cooperative extension to take the master food preserver course. But I, I guess what would your best advice be for someone who doesn't have a cooperative extension that's local to them that has some of these services? Would you recommend getting a pH meter if they're curious and, and want to know if their if their grandma's recipe is safe or what what would you recommend for someone who doesn't have a cooperative extension office near them that has these types of services yeah so first i'd recommend following a safe and tested recipe and then you don't have to worry about getting a ph meter and testing and then compare the recipe you have to what's there and if there's a simple add in so maybe you have tomato chili sauce that you know, is so similar, but maybe you're using a different spice. The spices can be interchanged. So that's completely safe. So you could talk to somebody even, you know, across the country, even if you don't have one right in your county, there's probably somebody in your state with food preservation information that you could call and ask some simple questions. But if they are wanting to get more into it, I definitely recommend getting trained, making sure you understand what a pH reading is. And we have, and maybe Anna and Jenny, you can link this in your show notes, Mm -hmm. but there is a document put out by our food safety specialist called Food Acidity and Safety. And it kind of tells you how to use that pH electrode to Mm -hmm. um, test and what you need to be testing for. But you would need to follow the instructions of Anna mentioned ThermoWorks. That's also one that I use. You, You would need to follow the instructions from ThermoWorks to make sure you're using that meter correctly. One thing that's often overlooked is that it needs to be calibrated and there's usually a fluid that you need to stick it in for a couple hours before you can use it. So there is that resource for you that you could look up and see and um, just make sure you're following the instructions closely on that. That won't apply, however, to low acid foods. So, you know, if you're just trying to can green beans, like it will never have the, the right pH. This is only going to be for things like Fruits, pickles, salsa, those kinds of things. And can you explain why it wouldn't work for things like green beans? Yeah. So most fruits, however, not all of them, and there have been some changes to some of the stuff put out by the University of Georgia and the National Center for Home Food Preservation. For example, some types of pears are not acidic enough to can. So they have been removed White peaches, for example, they have lower acid and so they can't be safely canned. 
at this point, they haven't been tested. So most fruits, they have high enough acid and or sugar levels that kind of push away growth of botulism. But low acid vegetables, mostly in some fruits, like I mentioned, and meats, they don't have that acid that protects it from the risk of botulism. And so what needs to happen in that instance is that those foods need to be cooked at a high enough temperature for a high enough amount of time to destroy any of the Clostridium botulinum germ that could be present in that food because it's that germ that produces botulism. So in those instances of things like green beans, it's not about acid, it's about the right amount of heat, which is much higher, 240 degrees, and the right amount of time it would take for that heat to circulate and penetrate every little particle inside the jar. Oh, I see what you're saying. So pH doesn't matter in low acid foods because you're doing pressure canning for a certain amount of time. Right. Yeah. It's not about pH in that. And now a quick word about our courses. Want to learn more about canning? Check out our video courses. Anna's beginner and advanced canning courses are available at smarthomecanning.com. And Jenny teaches super fast steam canning at startcanning.com. Use the code POD25, that's P-O-D-25, to get 25% off those courses today. Do you personally participate in any of the testing of new recipes or old recipes? And what role does the cooperative extension offices have in testing new recipes? Yeah, good question. I personally do not. I have not been involved in that. And to my knowledge... Most county extension faculty around the country probably are also not involved in that. So usually it's in a food science lab that Anna mentioned before and done with um, either the food safety scientists or specialists that do that in a lab setting. And those people are part of your university system, though, probably? Yes, Utah does have one and they do work in connection with Utah Department of Ag, but it is a Utah State University Extension Specialist on campus in Logan that helps with that. I couldn't speak to every state, sure, but most states have a food safety specialist in their campus that would at least know where you would go to get something tested. And each state has their own regulations as to, like, for example, our, our cottage food industry, mm-hmm. that's somewhat a rarity. Not a lot of states actually allow that. So there's more licensing requirements and standards for people to sell. Mm-hmm. Would you have a guess as to how many new recipes are tested that are relating to canning and preserving a year? Sure. Through the USDA National Center for Home Food Preservation, not much, like probably less than one a year, at least that I know of. Oh, wow. Um, They did just have a turnover. Somebody who worked there for years retired. There's no funding from the government for that. Of course. And it is pretty expensive to test a new recipe because they've got to have all the technology and the probes that go into every jar. And and then, you know, it's sent to computers and then, of course, they analyze those. So through the USDA, not much. However, I did just get back from a conference a few weeks ago and the ball canning company spoke and they do their own testing through their company. And so they have food scientists and microbiologists, as well as chefs that are working together. So the ball canning company puts out books fairly often. It's been a while since I've seen a brand new one, 
but every once in a while they'll update a book. Most people know the Ball Blue Book of Canning, and obviously that has had multiple renditions. But what's interesting to hear from them is a lot of their recipes don't pass the test. So you've got microbiologists and food scientists and dietitians working together, and they not everything flies by. I don't think they gave us specific numbers, but they did mention they'll test recipes and they fail. And so they have to just cut them off the shelf, you know, cut them off their list and and go for something different or adapt them. Mm. So that's important to note. I think even when you have these scientists working on them, some stuff just doesn't make the cut for home canning. I think that's an important distinction. And I think that's something Anna and I run into a lot, just fielding questions on social media. The idea for some people is, well, if I can buy this in a can on the store shelf, of course, I can put it in a jar and can it myself. And that just simply isn't the case because we don't have the same tools at our disposal for that are safe for home canning, right? Exactly. The equipment is definitely different. If you see like a commercial canning company, I mean, their, their canners are, you know, as big as my kitchen, if not bigger, it's not just something that can sit on the stove top and they have, they have regulations. They have to test for quality as well. Anyway, so our processes are totally different home canned versus commercially canned. So one question that I have for you, Melanie, is do you preserve a lot of food? You're like, whiz, do you do a lot on your own or are you sick and tired of it by the end of the canning season? Yes and no. So I do. I have a garden and I'll preserve from that. Occasionally too, I'll you know, I'll go hit the, the fruit way up in Box Elder County and bring home peaches to preserve. So I, I do. And then yes, towards the end of the season, I'm like, I'm done with this. But I, so th- this year, t- actually tomatoes, I do almost every year and sometimes in a variety of ways, but usually just whole or half tomatoes in water because it's one of the fastest ways to get them done. And then occasionally every couple of years, I'll do a batch of salsa, you know, that lasts us for a while. We actually just prefer fresh salsa. So a canned salsa isn't our favorite, so I don't do a ton. But some, what my favorite recipe for salsa home canned is actually the green tomatillo salsa. It gets better the longer it sits on the shelf. I mean, not like years and years later, but as soon as it's fresh, it's still kind of sour. But, you know, a couple months later, those flavors really sit in. So we'll do that. I'll sometimes, I'll go through different types of jams just, you know, based on, you know, especially if I get berries for pretty cheap at the grocery store. My favorite is blackberry freezer jam. I just, I just love how fresh that stays. And most jams I do very like low sugar or no sugar. So I have to do it in small jars because they'll mold quicker without that sugar helping them. Green beans pickled, which they call dilly beans. Those are super quick and easy. And then they just taste like a pickle. And then I also do a lot of freezing and dehydrating as well with a variety of foods. So yeah, I'm in there doing some of this stuff as well. And it can be exhausting, right? But it's also really fun to be like, look what I did. Yeah. And if you do small batches, you know, it doesn't have to be exhausting. Right. I had a question and maybe you don't have an answer to this, Melanie, but do you have any, a crazy story? Like anybody call in with just the most wild thing you've ever heard of? Yes, I do have one. So I had a phone call from a woman who was pressure canning chicken. Mm -hmm. And 
she said she went to a class and the person was citing Utah State University. And she's like, I just don't understand how the canned chicken recipe went from like 75 minutes to 10 minutes, but that's what they told me. And so that's what I did. And she's like, but you know, I had them on my counter for less than a day and they already started like oozing out and stinking really bad. And she's like, they definitely couldn't be eaten. And it took a while to figure out. I mean, obviously she was preserving them incorrectly. You can't pressure can chicken for 10 minutes and call it good. It's usually 75 minutes or, or maybe 95. I'd have to double check the notes there. But so as we were trying to figure out, like, where did you hear this? How did you hear Utah State University? And she talked about attending a class in her community. And it was just, you know, a, a woman she knew that lived near her teaching the class. And so I asked her, I said, do you have those papers with you? Will you get them out? I was probably on the phone with her for at least a half an hour, just walking through. And turns out she was in a pressure cooker class. Oh, but thought the same times applied for pressure canners. So sure, you could cook chicken in a pressure cooker for 10 minutes, but you wouldn't do it in a jar. And she just didn't realize that difference. And it took us a while to figure it out. So I think on the very back page, the person teaching had included, like, here's where you go for canning information. So she just assumed this whole thing was canning, but they were actually teaching pressure cooking and not pressure canning. Oh my gosh. So I was really grateful that those jars of chicken went bad before she yeah. tried to eat them. That they just, right. you know, I mean, think of partially cooking a chicken and leaving it in a jar overnight. Of course, it's going to get gross really fast. And that, you know, that's what happened. <laughs> so thankfully, those jars showed evidence of just the food going bad you know, before it was actually like making anybody sick. Melanie, tell our listeners, what is the difference between a pressure cooker and a pressure canner? Yeah. So a pressure canner is large enough and built for putting cans or jars, glass jars in to process low acid foods. You can also do some high acid foods in there. Like you really could can your peaches in a pressure canner. It's just at a lower pound of pressure in less time. But Mostly we know it for our low acid foods, such as vegetables and meats. So it's made for canning. That's the point. It's large enough to do that. Pressure cookers are not for jars. They're like the Instant Pots or the Cuisinart electric pressure cookers or a stovetop one that looks like a pot with a really heavy duty lid that will seal. And those were popular years ago before these electric ones came out. But they are different and separate. And that is confusing sometimes because some of the electric pressure cookers are touting canning that you could put a few jars in there to can. And while probably for high acid foods at sea level, that's fine. But Utah State University Extension, some of my colleagues did some testing a few years ago. And the higher you go in altitude in general, the, the lower the temperature of boiling water. So that, that's why we have to add minutes to canning times or add pounds of pressure for the low acid stuff. And they found at high, high altitudes, it didn't get hot enough in there to constitute as a pressure canner, which you needed to get 240 degrees. And it didn't. You know, they used the probes in there and those electric pressure cookers did not get that hot. 
And, and some of you might know that just from cooking chicken. <laughs> I know with one I have, I always have to add minutes because if I go off the minutes of a regular like pressure cooking chart, things are never done. And the general rule of thumb for high altitudes is add 10% more time, but that still doesn't make it a higher temperature. So there are some out there, like the Ball Canning Company does have an electric pressure canner. It's specifically made for that, but they still say in their guidelines to follow the recipe book that came with it only. So they vetted those recipes for that electric pressure canner, and it's actually most of them are high acid foods anyway. So it's, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting. There is a brand new one from the Presto Canning Company. And that's one thing some of my colleagues are waiting to hear the report on is if they actually vetted it for high altitudes. And we don't know that yet. We're still looking into that. Yeah, that's good to know. I spoke with Teresa Hunsaker just a couple weeks ago, and she said the tests are still out because it does make a difference where you live. My family lives at sea level in Alaska, but here it's like over 4,000 feet in elevation and it's just totally different. So my question, Melanie, and I think this will be our last question because we're at time, is how fast does botulism grow in a jar? Like after you preserve something. This was a question we just weren't sure about the other day. Okay, so if that Clostridium botulinum germ So, you know, it's just a microscopic germ that exists in soils around the world. If that happens to make it into the jar and hopefully you wash your vegetables and your hands and your countertops and it won't be there to begin with. But let's say it's just stuck inside some little, you know, part particle of the food and it gets in there. If it happens to get in your jar and you don't cook it for long enough and at a high enough temperature to kill it, then yes, it could start growing it will grow into botulism in your jar if it's there and doesn't get destroyed. So from what I've been told, it's 24 hours is when it can start growing. So not necessarily within 24 hours, but like 24 hours is when it could be multiplying and reproducing as, as this, this germ does. And it's actually the byproduct of that multiplication that creates the botulism toxin. And a little bit goes a long way to be deadly. So it's nothing to mess with for sure. And that's that's another reason why the rule for reprocessing food. So if something doesn't seal and you need to put a new lid on it, or if you realized, oh, I didn't do the right time, all of those are based on doing it within 24 hours for that reason. That is a really great point. Thank you so much for making that. Okay, thank you so much, Melanie, for being here. We really appreciate your knowledge and expertise. We love our cooperative extensions here in Utah, and we just appreciate everything you do for the public. So thank you so much for joining us on the Perfectly Preserved podcast. Thank you so much, Melanie. And I think this should encourage all of our listeners to seek out a cooperative extension near you. There's a Melanie waiting there for you, I'm sure, who can help with all of your preserving questions. So thanks again, Melanie. You're welcome. That's our show. We don't want you to miss an episode, so please be sure to subscribe. If you found this episode helpful and informative, please give our show a rating and review. It only takes a few seconds and it really helps our show grow. Follow us on social media at Smart Home Canning and at The Domestic Wildflower. Email your preserving questions to 
perfectlypreservedpodcast at gmail.com and we will do our best to answer your questions on the show. Thanks so much for listening. Stay tuned for our next episode released every week.